Welcome to In a Perfect Policy, hosted by the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Catalyst for Science Policy. At CASP, we work to advocate for science-based policy, engage lawmakers in their policymaking process, and promote science outreach within the community. My name is Chris Unterberger. I'm Sebastian Manzo. And we're your hosts for this episode. Today, we're going to focus on police, police reform, and looking at the best policies to address policing in the United States. Police reform has come back into the mainstream discussion in the U.S. after the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and a number of other Black Americans in the spring and summer of 2020. There's been a resurgence of interest in addressing policing issues in the past few months that originated from murders of other Black Americans at the hands of police, such as Michael Brown back in 2014 in Ferguson, Missouri, and Freddie Gray in Baltimore in 2015. So in today's episode of In a Perfect Policy, we had a discussion with University of South Carolina law professor Seth Stoughton. Before starting the interview, um, it's important to give some context on the current state of police reform in the United States. We both read multiple articles and papers on the current state of police reform. And I think it's, it's very clear that we know what the solutions are, but we have failed to successfully implement them. We need commitment at all levels of the government, whether it be federal, state, or local, to address the problem of police misconduct. However, as public attention shifts, policymakers and politicians put this issue aside and fail to address the problem. There's also this, this idea of feigned powerlessness, where politicians simply put their hands up and say that since police is so decentralized in this country, the federal government doesn't really have a role to play there. But there are many things that the federal government can do. What's also important is what policies we should actually be implementing and as scientists experimenting with. Look at what happened in, in Camden, New Jersey, where they had very high crime rates. They, it was clear that the police was not doing a good job. So what they did was they dissolved the Camden police force and made the Camden County police force. By creating a, a new force from scratch, you have a lot more control over who exactly gets to be a police officer and you can implement new policies and new practices that improve the relationship between the police and the community. For example, in Camden, they emphasized de-escalation a lot more. They also uh, emphasized less non-enforcement interactions between police and the community. So for example, they encouraged police officers just to walk around the neighborhood, to talk to people, to meet with people, have barbecues, just, just to build that relationship between the people and the police. And the consequence of forming this new police department was that violent crime rate actually dropped 42% and the murder rate dropped by half. So clearly this strategy was extremely effective. So another strategy to addressing these policing issues is more training. Basic training in the United States is a mere 21 weeks or 33 and a half weeks with field training. Whereas in Germany, that's two and a half years of training that needs to be done in order to become an accredited police officer. Essentially less time means less experience with these de-escalation and crisis preparedness techniques that are so important in preventing these violent and fatal encounters with the population from the police. Unfortunately, these training and qualification standards are varied throughout the United States from county to county, from state to state. That is an easy issue to address at the federal level to standardize training across these different entities. And, and to do that, um, 
you know, we've talked about different things the federal government can do, but unfortunately, you know, we have 18,000 police departments in this country, but we don't have uh, a single authority that has a power to implement or enforce these laws at the local level. One solution could potentially be to create a new division of the Department of Justice that focuses solely on police misconduct. When the Department of Justice has investigated police agencies for misconduct, police brutality has gone down in those communities. So there is a president here. It's just that with different administrations taking power, priorities change, and only temporary solutions have been created. There hasn't been like a permanent division of the DOJ that is that has taken this up. This authority could also monitor and regulate the funding that goes to departments based on the policies they're implementing and the standards that they follow. This division could also create a registry of dismissed officers to ensure that they are not rehired elsewhere. In England, they have something similar to this. England only has 43 police departments. Uh, they are all run by one independent body. That goes to show that there's a number of different ways to address policing and police reform via policy. Some other policies that the public has proposed to address these policing issues with the general population are, for example, the can't wait campaign, which demands the requirement of de-escalation, a warning before shooting, an exhaustion of all alternatives before shooting, a use of force continuum and comprehensive reporting, while also banning chokeholds and strangleholds and the shooting at moving vehicles, while on top of it all, requiring officers to intervene and stop excessive force used by other officers, and if that does occur, to report those incidences to a supervisor. Another popular slogan that's been heard at a number of the protests around the country is to defund the police. Defund the police can mean a number of different things depending on who you're talking to. And that's something that we're going to be talking to our guest today, Seth Stoughton, about. Seth Stoughton is an associate professor at the University of South Carolina School of Law, where he's affiliated with the Rule of Law Collaborative. Now at the University of South Carolina, he teaches police law and policy, criminal procedure, criminal law, and the regulation of ICE. He also studies policing and its regulation, and his scholarship has appeared in the Minnesota Law Review, the North Carolina Law Review, the Virginia Law Review, and many other top journals. Due to the recent civil unrest occurring over the summer of 2020, his research and thoughts on policing have come to the forefront of reform discussions, even appearing on the nationally televised Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Now, our interview with Professor Seth Stoughton. As academics in general, we want to discuss the types of metrics you use to measure policy reform within policing and what other scientific processes you use to determine what works and what doesn't work? Yeah, so there, there is a bold question-begging assumption in there, which is that we actually use metrics to evaluate police reform efforts. That is very often not the case. Historically, police reform efforts or changes to training or changes to policy have not been empirically eval uh, evaluated, uh, let alone <laughs> validated in any, in any broad sense. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One reason is uh, it, it's difficult uh, when we're talking about police training or a policy. There are all the normal sort of ethical considerations that you would consider for a randomized controlled trial. There are a lot of variables uh, with, with policing. It makes it very difficult to do a reliable, nuanced evaluation, even when you're talking about something like a piece of equipment, like the effect of body cameras. And that's actually one of the clearest examples, because if you're evaluating something like training, then uh, two different 
modules of the same training taught by two different instructors might have different effects, different content, right? Or the same content presented differently in a way that might be meaningful. Uh, but even with something like body cameras, there are aspects of policing that just make field trials really, really difficult. Uh, officers work multiple shifts. They interact with other officers. There's contamination between your control group and your, your, uh, your, your research group. Part of it is doing some forms of empirical validation and policing is just really challenging. And that's not all of it because we can do it and we have done it. There are certain policies that lend themselves to empirical evaluation. How we allocate police resources, for example, going back to the 70s in the Kansas City preventative patrol experiment, we've been comfortable doing uh, even fairly large RCTs in policing sometimes on some issues. But when it comes to evaluating the effects of a particular change to training or evaluating the effects of a particular change to policy, we also have to acknowledge that there is a cultural resistance to empirical evaluation in policing. Policing is not medicine. Medicine was not always medicine either, right? If you look back at the history of medicine, it was not always empirical or evidence-based the way it is now. Policing is now what medicine was 100 years ago, or maybe, maybe a little more. Uh, there's a lot of anecdote. There's a lot of war story. There's a lot of this is the way it's always been done. There's a lot of hope. There's a lot of prayer. There's a lot of private vendors who are selling the police policy or training equivalent of snake oil. We're starting to see some changes to that. Uh, we're starting to see a growth in what is referred to in the industry as evidence-based policing. But I, I think it's still relatively new in many contexts. Okay, all of which is to say, I completely dodged your question. Let me actually answer the question. What are the metrics, right? What, what thing would we measure? Well, we can measure attitudes. What changes officers' attitudes about things? If, when they go through this training, do they feel better, worse, or neither about this particular topic? Are they more sympathetic to this issue, for example? We can uh, potentially measure outcomes, but it depends on context, right? Which outcome is relevant depends on the nature of the experiment or the nature of the research you're doing. We could look at outcomes for crime rates. We could look at outcomes for use of force rates. We could look at outcomes for the number of arrests. We could look at um, perceptions of uh, community members. Uh, does your trust, respect, or sense of legitimacy for the police department go up, down, or, or not move, right? Um, so there are metrics that we can test for if we have the gumption and support to actually do it. That was going to be one of my follow-up questions is whether or not you did base the results of these trials based on um, public feedback. Yeah, so I, I was concerned that you were only looking at the outcomes in the eyes of the actual police, whereas it is important to get the public gauge of how they respond to that reform. No, it, it's very important. It's, it's one of the things that isn't often missing from sort of traditional police discussions, right? So officers might say, well, if we use this particular patrol tactic, let's say jump outs or something, we make more arrests. But it's not clear that normatively making more arrests is a desirable outcome, right? Or crime rates, you know, if, if we engage in this thing, we can bring crime rates down. Okay, but is that worth it? Is it harm efficient, right? Are the benefits worth the cost? That's a normative discussion. That's a normative question. You can't have an answer to that without having public input. I, I think there is broader recognition. Folks like the Policing Project at NYU are very heavily involved in this movement for democratic policing, which is essentially, the, the, in my view, the observation, not the argument, but the observation 
observation that in a democracy, we as the populace get to pick the priorities of a police agency or of any government institution. Uh, it is not up to the government to decide when the government is doing a good job. It's up to us to decide when the government's doing a good job. So, so I actually have a question that, that does relate to the first one in a way. So uh, to prepare for this podcast, I read a bunch of different uh, news articles and opinion pieces, like some of the ones you've worked on for The Atlantic, but I also read some uh, journal papers. And it's clear that, you know, they contain <laughs> some invaluable information, right? But they're not written for policymakers. They're not written for police officers. Have there been efforts to translate these technical studies to practitioner-friendly language that could be more easily understood by, by police officers and police chiefs? You, you mean you, you don't feel like we can just walk into a station house <laughs> and start talking about bivariate controls and endogeneity? Right. And, and um, there have been efforts uh, and they're getting better. So one of the more promising aspects of the, the push for evidence-based policing is the development of professional societies. We have the American Society for Evidence-Based Policing, for example. There's a Canadian Society for Evidence-Based Policing. There's the Society, which started in the UK for Evidence-Based Policing, the Australian Society, right? And a big part of what those societies do uh, is translate. They, um, most of those societies are not primarily for academics, although uh, they invite and encourage academic participation. They're actually for what they call pracademics. These are uh, police officers who are academically minded, who might have uh, graduate degrees or PhDs in some, usually social science, and they're running uh, experiments in-house or they're, they're developing information in-house. And a big part of what those folks can do and, and should be doing and are doing is to take a complicated 25-page criminology study on patrol tactics and turn it into two pages of, uh, this, is, this is what this actually means, right? This is the, the implications for what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. The uh, Department of Justice uh, and the National Institute of Justice now have uh, what's called the LEADS Scholar Program. And I don't remember what LEADS stands for, but it is for practicing police officers who uh, usually have academic training or are going through uh, graduate level academic training who want, to, who want funding and support to do evidence-based research on policing in the context of their local agency. So they're not doing big national surveys. They're saying, well, what works here? What works for us? And then a big part of that LEAD Scholar program is, is sharing that information to, to all of the folks who are interested in it. There's also, I think, a little more recognition that we need that translation, not just in the formal seek it out sense. Like if, if you know about evidence-based policing, then you can go to the Society for Evidence-Based Policing and get some of this material. But that's not enough because a lot of folks don't know about it. So I, uh, right, right now, as a matter of fact, I'm helping the California Community College system, which has 19 different police academies, by facilitating a series of panel discussions on evidence-based policing and what it means for pre-service officers who are in training, what it means for academy directors and academy instructors, and uh, just trying to, trying to bring that message to the, to the police masses, if that makes any sense. But this lack of translatability is a huge issue. We have 40 or 50 years of often deep, often rich criminological work that hasn't always been translated into policing. And when it has been, 
we have some really cool examples. The whole field of police tactics is actually evidence-based, right? Or at least it's academic-based with uh, criminologists like Jim Fife back in the 70s who realized that cops were not only getting killed a lot more often than they should be, they were killing other people a lot more often than they should be. What can we do to avoid this? Well, we can introduce tactics. That's caught on. But What's crazy is a, a, a lot of cops don't realize that the whole field of police tactics is kind of because of an academic intervention. There's a lot of distrust of policing, uh, excuse me, there's a lot of distrust within policing of academics and, and external study. Uh, David Harris actually wrote a book on this called Failed Science, uh, which is specific to policing and it's why policing resists scientific evidence, um, particularly, although not exclusively in the form of the forensic sciences. Do, do police departments have to request these panels and these, I guess, seminars or, or, or summaries of, of these uh, technical studies? Or does the like, state tell them, okay, you need to listen to these seminars, you need to participate in these panels? No, it's, it's all police agency specific. Um, there are, um, I, I'm not aware, well, I, I, I say that, but let me give you 50 states, right? So there are some differences. Oregon. Uh, I believe it was, it could be, oh boy, it could be why. This is my East Coast bias. I don't know the difference between Oregon and Washington. I know they're different states, but they're kind of the same state from, from, for me. And I, I apologize so sincerely to folks in Oregon and Washington who are deeply offended by what I just said, but I, I can't keep of you apart. I'm sorry. Um, one of them just passed a law that requires police training and policy to be evidence-based. So we do see some mandate, but that's a pretty unique mandate. It, it's not the case in any other state that I'm aware of. Most of it comes down to how an individual police agency or how a police chief or a sheriff wants want to run their agency. And this is actually one of the things that's prevented the continued professionalization uh, of, of policing because we have 18,000 police agencies in the country. So one of them can be doing absolutely everything right, but another one who has overlapping jurisdiction can be doing, can be totally ignoring the state of the, the research. So speaking of that hyper-localization of those, all those different police agencies, what is the role of police reform at that federal level? And what kind of responsibility is it at the national level? And how does it filter down to both the state and the local levels? Yeah, the national government has limited ability to order local governments or state governments to do things with policing, right? They can incentivize, but because of a legal doctrine called the anti-commandeering doctrine, they can't, the federal government can't say, this is how you will run police agencies, or this will be the minimum training that your state will require. They can't actually do that. What they could do is say, we're not going to give you criminal justice grant money unless you adopt these requirements, right? Unless you set your minimum training to be X, or unless you uh, have a, a law that a state law that requires police agencies to do this thing or not do this thing, or to adopt this policy or to not adopt this policy, right? The federal government has not used the power of the purse in criminal justice reform. It has, well, let me rephrase that. It hasn't used it in police reform. It's used it in other aspects of criminal justice reform, including in the fields of domestic violence, uh, DUI. The reason all states have a 0.08 blood or breath alcohol content law is because the federal government said, if you don't adopt a 0.08, we're going to withhold federal highway funds. And no state can survive without federal highway funds. 
We could do something similar with, with burn grants, criminal justice grants, but we largely have not. So that's one thing the federal government could do. Another thing the federal government to do is actually set up a national standards setting board. It kind of maybe started to do that when it with uh, the, the Presidential Commission on 21st Century uh, Policing, the, the Task Force on 21st Century Policing. But one of the task force's recommendations was we need a, a more permanent panel. We need a more permanent task force rather than an ad hoc task force. And one of the things that that more permanent body could do is develop evidence-based standards. What's the right level of minimum training hours for police agencies uh, or police officers? Uh, it ranges right now, for example, right? In the United States, we have between, on average, 21 to 24 weeks of training in police academies. In my state of South Carolina, officers get 12 weeks of training. So what's, what's the right number? Um, or what's the better number? At what point do we start to see um, marginal inefficiencies there that we should say, okay, well, 30 weeks is good, 35 weeks, maybe we don't get the benefit we're hoping for. We have no idea. Okay, so that's, uh, we could incentivize, we could standard set at the federal level. Uh, we could collect data at the federal level because we don't. Uh, the only data collection right now on policing is purely voluntary and it hasn't been tremendously successful. We're, we're much better about collecting crime data, uh, let alone economic data, than we are about policing data. So those, I think, for me, are, are the big three. Yeah, I've actually read that we don't really know how many forceful interactions there are with police and, and, and the community or how many people are actually killed by police oftentimes, uh, just because that there's just not, not enough data. And that probably also affects you as an academic that is trying to do research and evidence-based solutions to these problems. When you don't have the data, you're kind of limited in what you can do, right? It, it is incredibly frustrating that in, this, in the period of a couple of minutes, I can do some Google searches, dig through a couple of obvious and easily available government reports and tell you like how many metric tons of shellfish the US imported and how many cars and light trucks we exported to every other country in the world. But I have no government source of information for how many times officers um, killed somebody last year. Right. I, I can look at the Washington Post and private efforts killed by police.net, fatal encounters, right? I, I can look at what they're doing, but they're actually under-inclusive. Um, Washington Post is a good example. They only capture lethal police shootings. So they're not capturing shooting uh, uh, non-lethal shootings, right? Which the majority of are, are non-lethal. And they're not capturing other uh, officer-involved homicides, right? If an officer intentionally runs someone over with their car, they don't get you don't get tracked in that data. And that's just shootings, right? That's, that's just the uh, roughly 1,000 people, 1,100, 1,200 people every year who are killed by police in total. But that's the most serious use of force. And like anything on a bell curve, right, the most serious is the least common. When we look at the most common types of use of force, shoving, kicking, punching, bringing somebody to the ground, George Floyd, for example, holding someone on the ground, we have no idea how often that happens. And that's, I, I, it, it's sort of embarrassing, frustrating as an academic and sort of embarrassing to be in a first world country and say, yeah, we have no idea how often the, the, the government exercises its authority in this way. I have one quick follow-up. It might not be that quick, but just, it's just <laughs> really interesting. Um, do you, do you think the reason why we haven't adopted these federal level policies where we force departments to do better data collection, for example, by cutting funding, 
do you think this hasn't happened because of just lack of political will or because it seems very reasonable it seems like something that both democrats republicans everyone can kind of agree on right what what do you think has been the reason why this hasn't been successfully implemented um i think it ultimately breaks down to lack of political will uh, when we get into the why do we have a lack of political will, I think it's because we are very deeply divided in society about what police are, what they should do, uh, how much to support them, and how much to think critically or to look critically at what they're doing. I, I think some of that is just social. Some of the, the, the social idea, um, which is certainly promulgated by some police agencies or, or police officials or union officials. Uh, the idea that if we start to second guess officers, if we really start to, to collect this data in a robust way, it may lead them to second guess themselves, to hesitate when they shouldn't, uh, and the result could be tragic there, right? Um, I, I, I don't buy that argument, but I do think it is an argument out there in society that that has been used to prevent efforts like this. I think there is some cultural resistance, not just in society, but particularly within policing. No agency wants to be last, right? No agency wants to say, wow, we're, we're far below the curve here, uh, or, or we have way more uses of force than any other agency. Uh, no, nobody wants to admit that. So in some sense, it's actually easier to not know, right? You, you don't, this is, it's, it's sort of sad. It's like the, the folks who think, wow, something could be seriously wrong with me, but I don't want to go to the doctor and get it confirmed, right? Like, you're an idiot. That's a horrible idea. But I, I, I sometimes get that sense from, from policing. There's also a lot of distrust, and I don't just mean community distrust of the police. There's also a lot of distrust within policing of community. So one of the fears, absolutely, is that this data will be used to uh, support a particular ideological perspective and not actually used uh, or presented in, a, in an honest way. For example, traffic stop data, uh, racial disparity data, there's a lot of resistance to that within policing. Just a, a, a flat-out disbelief that the data is what it is or, or an, uh, an assertion that it does not show what it purports to show. And unfortunately, this is a little bit of, a, a, of that breakdown because policing historically hasn't been uh, amenable to, to, to research. So when an officer sees something like there is a significant, there's a statistically significant racial disparity in traffic stops, what the officer hears is, so you're saying I'm racist. And what the officer doesn't always read is the, the inevitable disclaimer in the report that says, this is not necessarily indicative of individual racial bias. There are a whole range of factors that could explain this. There are hypotheses that we need to test and check. Um, it might be systemic, it might be implicit, it might be, you know, so on. It, it might actually reflect uh, um, changes in, in the population, right? Um, so, for example, um, wow, a, a lot more young people get pulled over than old people because young people tend to drive faster than old people. They have a higher tolerance for risk, right? I'm not saying that that's true of race at all. I'm saying there are a bunch of different hypotheses that might explain this. This is why we need the data so we can start testing the hypotheses. But when officers or police agencies hear the you're racist hypothesis, they're, they're not interested or when they hear what they think as, of as the you're racist hypothesis, they, they sort of shut down. So they're not just, they're, they're not interested in that anymore. 
Yeah, that that's where humans get a little bit too many variables for me. I like to stick to mouse models. They're a lot simpler. <laughs> they don't have to deal with the age thing. So yeah, you t- uh, kudos to you for for looking at these things. It's yeah, I I appreciate that. It's it's tough, right? And and I think sometimes on both the police side and the community side, I think one of the traps that we sometimes fall into is the simple solutions. Uh, or the simple explanations, right? When we're talking about police encounters, we're talking about something with a tremendous number of variables. We're talking about something that is complex and dynamic, and it it's it has all of the different aspects of human interaction, sociology and psychology and history, and all of that's compacted on each other. I think anytime we look at and say, well, there's a simple explanation for this, or there's a simple solution for this, we're making a mistake. Uh, one of my favorite sayings recently has been, and I wish I knew to whom to attribute this, for every complicated problem, there is a solution that is simple, elegant, and wrong. And that is absolutely the case, I think, with, with policing. Unfortunately, we have this history in policing. Sorry, I'm, I'm just going to rant about this. We have this history in policing of silver bullet solutions, right? Bad, I not maybe the best choice of words given the problem with police violence, but um, with, with panacea, right? We have uh, a lot of officers who are shooting people. You know what the solution is? Pepper spray. We still have a lot of problems with use of force. You know what the solution is? Tasers. We still have a problem with use of force. Uh, so you know what the solution is? Body cameras. We have a problem with racial profiling. So the solution is dash cameras. We still have a problem with racial profiling. So now the solution is body cameras, right? And we jump from solution to, well, we don't jump. We like reel from solution to solution like a drunk sailor at port. And we haven't accepted as a society or within policing that these are very complex problems that require nuanced, multifaceted aspects of, of solution. I, I think that's also hurt us. Sorry, rant over. No, no, this has been, been great. And I 100% agree with you that I think oftentimes in the news, on Facebook, Twitter, we always try to simplify things and it's wrong, right, good, evil, and all the nuance and complexity gets kind of thrown out the window. And it's tough because, for example, you know, social justice movements often adopt slogans and phrases that, that will simplify messages. And post-George Floyd, defund the police has been one of them. But, you know, this, the meaning has kind of become misconstrued and politicized. Like, what, what does defund the police mean to you? And do you think that there are more proper ways to convey the true meaning? Like you're saying, this is a very complex problem, but how can we digest it? How can we tell people what the problem is in kind of a condensed way? Yeah, I, I, think, um, I think the defund the police slogan is, um, it, it, it's very catchy. I think if you were sympathetic to the argument, it's, uh, it, it's a great slogan. The problem for me with it is if you aren't sympathetic to the argument, then you're going to read it in the worst possible way, and you're not actually going to engage in the conversation that it's trying to have. So um, I do think there's a range, but what I understand defund the police to mean is that we need to decouple policing and public safety, or at least we need to acknowledge that we need a bigger, broader public safety infrastructure beyond just policing. We have conflated as a society, we have conflated public safety and policing, like our Venn diagram is a circle. And we need to peel that apart a little bit and say, look, certainly policing plays a role in certain aspects of public safety, but we have 
over-invested in policing as a solution to problems that policing cannot possibly solve. And I will use some familiar examples, uh, poverty, homelessness, mental health, substance abuse, uh, even things like anger management, school discipline. We throw a lot of police resources at those. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe society would be better off if we threw other resources at those. So to me, defund the police means we can, if we had alternatives, if we had invested in a better public health or public safety infrastructure, we would not need to use the same level of police resources to deal with those problems. And that means we could divest some of the resources that we currently dedicate to policing to these, these other efforts. The reason that I'm a little skeptical of defund the police as a slogan, uh, in addition to the, the fact that, that it people hear it and think it means just get rid of police agencies, which is not, I think, what it means for most of the people who, who say it. Um, although there certainly is a, a, an abolition uh, discussion, um, but that's, let's, we'll, we'll hold that for now. I don't think that defund the police actually paints quite the right level of nuanced picture because I think you couldn't take enough money from the police to create the broader infrastructure that I'm talking about. Even if we got rid of a, a, a police agency in any given city, I don't think it would give us the free funding to deal with all of the different types of problems, the, the, the homelessness infrastructure, the poverty, food assistance infrastructure, uh, uh, mental health uh, services infrastructure. We need more than just what we can take away from the police. So I think for me, the, the, the slogan is more like, uh, let's create a more comprehensive overarching public health and safety infrastructure, which could allow us to take some amount of money from the police, but will also require a significant investment of other capital. That's a lot to put on a, on a banner or a t-shirt though, right? <laughs> I could see it on a hat. Uh, it's not that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just like circling the, circling the whole thing. Um, I, I, you know, I, I'm, What's crazy to me is when you get into the meaning, like what do you, do you fund the police sort of that, that idea of decoupling and of, of providing other resources. When you talk to cops about that, overwhelmingly they agree. They know they can't deal with mental health. They don't really wanna deal with mental health. They're put into the position by society that says, guess what? If one of your family members is going nuts and breaking windows and you can't control them, the only people you can call are the police, or at least the police are overwhelmingly the ones who are likely to come out in any given jurisdiction. Police don't wanna deal with that, and they know they don't have good, good training or facilities to deal with it. So um, when you get into sort of the message or, or, or when you get into the interests that underlie the conversation, as opposed to the positions that people take or that, or that we think they take, um, there's actually a lot more agreement than disagreement on some of this stuff. I do wanna wrap up by asking, in a perfect policies trademark question, which is hopefully gonna collect all the rest of your knowledge that you have about this in one single answer. So I hope you're prepared for that. But what is your perfect policy for policing? So my perfect policy starts from the values and principles that underlie policing. And any policy that we're talking about for social interaction, to me, comes down to what the values, what the principles are that motivate that policy. And for me, I think policing needs to adopt a service-oriented mindset that seeks to protect community members, all community members, from unnecessary indignity and harm. I think if that was the underlying value, if that was the, the meta-policy, 
I think we would actually have uh, a, a far better world and far fewer problems than, than we currently have. That's a great answer. <laughs> Thank you. So we appreciate all of the answers. You gave us much more than we even asked for. So we appreciate that. Right Take on. care, Thank guys. You nice meeting much, you. Seth. And good, you, good luck with your Take studies. Care. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <Appreciate> Thank you. <laughs> I don't know about you, Sebastian, but that was a good interview. It's really apparent that Seth is enthusiastic about this research, about this work, about improving policing in our country. And I'm especially fond of this evidence-based policing that he was mentioning, that he was really rooting for within the interview. As scientists, I think that's important for us to extend outside the science realm into other areas, including policing, using an evidence-based approach to actually address issues and find solutions for them. And it does mirror this evidence-based policy that CASP does advocate for at every level of government, whether that be a local mm -hmm. or state or even national levels. Yeah. I, I really did find it shocking that um, evidence-based policing is kind of a, a new term or, or it's, it's not something that is ubiquitous in the country, right? Yeah. You would expect it to be, right? Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, as Seth said, you know, there's a lot of internal resistance by the police departments. And there's this culture of not trusting academia and just going by anecdotes and stories and just trusting your gut, for that kind of policing, uh, which is a big problem. Uh, and I think another kind of uh, interesting thing that he mentioned was the lack of metrics. You know, he, when you ask your first question about metrics, he was, he, he basically said that there basically yeah. are none, right? Or, or that there's very little, right? which is kind of depressing, but I think with some of the- It's eye-opening eye for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. although I, I think with some of, the, some of the policies he suggested and some of the stuff we talked about pre-interview, um, hopefully improving data collection would, would improve the access to different metrics and, and um, you know, analysis. So I asked this question about translating technical papers. I actually didn't know that there were these societies like the American Society for Evidence-Based Policing that actually do this work and translate this technical work. Although, again, it was slightly worrying that police depart individual police departments had to basically request these seminars and these panels uh, by these different societies. Ideally, you would want maybe the state or, or the federal government to maybe advertise these seminars and these these sessions, maybe not force departments to to do them, but at least encourage them because it seems like not many departments, it, it seems like Seth, Seth, Seth seemed to believe that many departments don't even know that evidence-based policing is a thing or that these societies even offer these kind of, kinds of seminars. So I think increasing awareness of, of that is would be a huge help. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned a few other societies that looked at how to address this data collection problem. And one of the ones that stuck out to me during that interview was the policing project at the NYU School of Law. Just looking at their website and all of what they have to offer, they are really focused on building that transparency and accountability from the public side through the police departments, and then also implementing data that is collected from these police departments into future reform. So it's unfortunate we didn't get to talk to Seth about this, but uh, he actually has written a book on this and he's done a few TED talks on this about um, warrior culture in police departments. This, this backed against the wall mentality or, or this belief that everyone you meet as a police officer is a potential threat is really dangerous and promotes police misconduct. You know, a warrior is prepared to fight, right? 
So I think Seth, what's, what Seth advocated for is a guardian mindset, which basically changes the focus from become like being an authority to being a protector. So taking care of a community, not enforcing laws for a community. And I, I think that that would be a great solution, although I'm not sure how it could be implemented. No, I mean, like he said at the end there about his uh, perfect policy, it's essentially a mindset and it's a culture thing that you have to implement, not necessarily a policy that you can enforce. Yeah. This warrior mentality is even worn on the clothes of the officers, right? It is important that officers look like officers, that they're distinguishable. But the fact that they look like soldiers in some cases is off-putting to the general public. That's distancing them and putting fear in the eyes of the public. And that's just me speaking from the heart, not necessarily from a place of evidence. But I think that is an important thought. This visualization of those who are supposed to be protecting us as warriors is apparent. Yeah. No, yeah, I I agree 100%. We um, mentioned this before, but maybe one way would be to promote more community engagement. So police officers, not just patrolling and searching, you know, looking for people to arrest, but to actually participate in community events, like, like I said, like barbecues or baseball games or whatever, just getting to know the community they police so that the people that live there know who these police officers are. They know them as, they see them as people, not as, you know, these intimidating guys that are there just to find someone to arrest, but someone they can trust, someone they can feel reassured by, not threatened by. Yeah. And that's part of that guardianship, that trust, that uh, reassurance is part of making a strong society. And something that Seth was alluding to in there, and he did mention a few times, and even within your mentioning of going out into the community, going to barbecues and baseball games with the community and building that trust is this idea of defunding, it comes back to this defunding of the police idea that's been spreading throughout the United States in some circles. We asked Seth what defunding meant to him, and he gave a good answer. And what I gathered from it is that defunding is not necessarily stripping, but it's decoupling. The decoupling of responsibilities that shouldn't be put on police officers in the first place whether that be addressing mental health issues within the community, traffic violations within the community. There's a number of responsibilities that currently police officers carry that can be carried by people with more training in those areas than police officers who currently have 21 weeks of training, 33 and a half in the field. Yeah, I mean, it's just unrealistic. I mean, we expect a police officer to be a psychologist, a Navy SEAL, you know, one man, one person can't be all those things. So I think, like you said, it's more about spreading the responsibility uh, and taking kind of a more holistic, broader approach to, to solve the problem. I agree. That's definitely the way to go. It's a guardianship mentality that needs to be put in place. Now we just have to write a policy about it. <laughs> so thank you for listening today. For more information on policing, police reform, and different issues with police in the United States and elsewhere. Go check out some of the resources that we'll link to in the show notes. Check out some of Professor Seth Stoughton's academic work or check them out on Twitter at Police Law Prof on Twitter. Thanks for tuning in to In a Perfect Policy with UW-Madison's Catalyst for Science Policy. For more episodes, please check out casp.wisc.edu slash podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review in a perfect policy wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by myself and Sebastian, 
with help from Lauren Schrader and Maya Gumnit. Thank you to Seth Stone for coming and interviewing with us and answering all of our great questions. And I hope you have a great day.